We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, so I encourage you to take your copy of the Scriptures and turn there. And I'm going to be reading from verse 21 all the way down through verse 40. And as you turn there, I'll take a moment to let you know that Pastor Dixon has recently published a book. It was published over Thanksgiving as an e-book, and just this past week, I believe, or at least a week and a half ago, It came out as a hard copy book, and we're hoping to have these in the bookstore uh, within hopefully two weeks, I would say, potentially as early as next Sunday. I have read this book, and I highly recommend it to you, highly recommend it to you. I think it's a very helpful uh, treatment of how we as Christians can make a difference in what indeed is a very crazy, mixed-up world. So this will hopefully be in the bookstore as early as next Sunday, for sure, probably the Sunday after that. And again, I highly recommend that you get this book and read it. It will be well worth your time. Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, starting in verse 21. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, where Dr. Luke records these words. And when eight days were complete for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. <clears throat> now when the day of, days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. 
So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, once more we gather together to hear your word, and I pray that we as your people would receive it as it is, truly, the words of God. Thank you for the privilege of feasting upon these words and finding our souls saturated and satisfied with them. And I pray that you would help us to glean these truths and take from them the applications necessary for us to live them out even this week. To the praise of your glory, we praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, my, one of my sisters sent me a link to a shared Spotify account that she had called Nostalgia. And this Spotify account contained three and a half hours, I think it was almost three and a half hours worth of songs that me and my siblings would know very well because these were the songs that somehow were connected to our childhood. And she called it Nostalgia because some of those songs we hadn't heard in years and years, and yet they bring back all those memories of when we were a kid. So I was listening through it, and uh, it came to this one song that I had not heard in probably 15, maybe even 20 years. And it was a song by an old, it was a ballad, written by a guy named Marty Robbins. I don't know if anybody knows who that is, but he was a, a, sing, a Western singer back in, the, I think, the 50s and 60s. And it was this song that, that told the story of the Alamo. I'm not sure if you've ever heard the story of the Alamo or anything like that, but it was a it was a mission in San Antonio, Texas, and it was back in the 1830s when it was used by Texans who were trying to gain their independence as a state as a fortress, the Alamo, and it was used as a fortress to withstand the forces of the Mexican army led by their general, Santa Ana. The song is a ballad telling that story, and I remember as a kid first hearing about the Alamo when I watched a Disney movie called Davy Crockett. Has anybody seen that movie, Davy Crockett? Okay, good. So that, I, I was really little, and I don't remember the exact event when I first watched it, but my mom tells me that we're watching the story. And if you know the story of the Davy Crockett movie, you know, he and his sidekick are going through, and they're going through every kind of situation a manager, uh, you can imagine, and they're escaping all of them, and Davy Crockett's just this tough guy. Nobody can beat him. And then he ends up taking his buddy, and they go over to the Alamo. And there they're helping a General uh, Travis, or Colonel Travis, who was the, the leader at the garrison there, to withstand the forces that were much larger than them. It's basically 185 people holding back 5,000 Mexican troops. And as a kid, watching that movie, we're like, oh, Davy Crockett's gotten out of all of those jams before. He's going to be able to hold back Santa Ana and his army. And he gets to the movie, and if you, if, if you haven't seen it, I'm spoiling it for you. But you, you get to the movie, and one by one, all of these characters that were at the Alamo, that you were like, wow, this group, they're going to be able to hold them back. One by one, they're all dying. And then finally, Davy Crockett's sidekick gets shot and is dying. And I, apparently, my mom said, us kids' eyes were just wide, like, wait a minute, that's not how this is supposed to end. 
And then the last scene, the last thing you see in the movie is Davy Crockett is pretty much one of the last guys, and he's got his rifle, and he, he can't load it anymore, so he's just swinging it back and around as all the soldiers are surrounding him, and that's how the movie ends. You don't see anything else after that. And apparently, us kids were very distressed by that, and we said, Mom, he, he kept swinging, right? He made it, right? He lived, right? And if you know the story of the Alamo, the Alamo story is that on March 6, 1836, after 13 days of withstanding siege from the Mexican army, uh, that dawn, after 90 minutes of fighting, the entire garrison was wiped out. Everyone, including the former congressman, David Crockett, were killed. During the course of that siege, Colonel William B. Travis wrote a letter and sent it to uh, the people of Texas, begging them, sending out this plea to send aid and help to them, to come join their cause. Travis could not escape. His men could not escape. They were surrounded by five, some say as little as 2,000, but it was probably more like 5,000 Mexican troops. They could not escape. But they didn't want to either. Those Texans did not want to escape because they knew that what they were fighting for was the independence of Texas and that for them, even though the situation was bleak, they were making a statement that they would not back down. But he sent this letter, and he sent it out, and it's become quite famous, actually, asking for help, asking for aid, asking people to join in the fight. But imagine, you're a small garrison made up of people who really aren't trained soldiers, surrounded by 5,000 highly trained Mexican troops who will show no quarter. In fact, when Santa Ana issued them a an ultimatum, surrender or die, Colonel Travis had them fire a cannon in response, had the garrison fire the cannon, and uh, Santa Anna flew a red flag from one of the church steeples showing that he would show no quarter, that he would kill every last man in that garrison. Imagine being the men in there. You're surrounded. You have no hope. You're, you're asking for help. You need, in a sense, to be delivered but you know you cannot save it yourself. That in a sense, it's only a matter of time before you're dead. The hopelessness of the situation faced by the men at the garrison of the Alamo pales in comparison to the hopelessness of the situation of humanity when Jesus was born. As much as it is... to Heroic to think of the actions of those men who fought for what they believed was right at the Alamo. Their salvation was simply a temporary salvation that they hoped would come in the form of soldiers who would help aid them in the fight for independence of Texas. But one day each of those men would die and face his creator. In the days of Jesus, there were men and women and children who also would die and face their creator. The question about who this Jesus was and is is the question that Luke is answering to a man named Theophilus. At the beginning of chapter 1, he says, I wrote this treatise to you, O Theophilus, so that you might be able to not only have your own faith bolstered, but that you'd be able to answer the questions the inquiries 
of people who are wondering whether or not they really believe this Jesus is who he said he was. So Luke is trying to bolster the faith of Theophilus, who has all of these other people telling him, you're not, you're not believing anything that's true. This is all a myth. This guy, Jesus, these are all legends that you're hearing. This means absolutely nothing. Quit following that, that crazy, maniacal man and follow real religions that are actually going to do something for you. Theophilus said, I, I don't understand, Luke. I thought Jesus was supposedly the Redeemer of Israel. Isn't that what he said he was? Why did he die on a cross? Why are his followers saying that he rose from the dead? Nobody rises from the dead on their own. What is going on? I don't understand. Why did this great teacher who performed so many miracles, why did he have to die? Why was he killed? If he's your Messiah, I thought like all of you Jewish people were expecting your Messiah to be a king. Theophilus probably needed to be reminded of his own spiritual plight. It's as if his own soul was an Alamo garrison, surrounded by the enemies of his own sin, of Satan himself, of the world putting all the pressures on him to reject Jesus, to reject everything around him that was related to Christ. And he had no hope. And indeed, like Theophilus, like Luke, like any other human being who has existed since the fall of man, we all have been our own little Alamo garrisons surrounded by our sinful enemy, unable to do anything to deliver ourselves. So what Luke wants Theophilus to understand is that Jesus is the promised redeemer. He is the deliverer. He's the aid that we need, but we didn't have any kind of letter we wrote for. He is the Redeemer set to bring the light of salvation to all sinful people. And that is what Luke wants Theophilus to remember, and he does so by demonstrating three ways in which Jesus is the Redeemer. And I want to share those with you briefly. Obviously, we're looking at 19 verses. I can't get into everything, so I've kind of summarized a lot of it. If you want to dig in deeper into those 19 verses on your own time, I highly encourage you because there is a lot there, and you may be unsatisfied in some senses because I'm going to have to skip some stuff just by virtue of the fact that this is a long text. But I do believe that we can get the highlights of it. And there are three ways in which Jesus is the Redeemer, as Luke describes for Theophilus. And the first one is in verses 21 through 24, where he describes Jesus as the sanctified Redeemer the sanctified Redeemer. In verse 21, we read that when the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. He is the firstborn of Mary. Mary had been a virgin. She conceived a child miraculously through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And in accordance with the Old Testament law, He was circumcised as a sign of God's covenant to his people, as a sign of that old covenant to his people, that Jesus was a part of the people of Israel. But what I want you to notice is in verse 22, several things Luke mentions for Theophilus to notice and for us to notice. And the first thing is this, that Jesus was sanctified in accordance with the law. For in verse 22, Mary 
It says, when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the days of her purification. Well, if you were to look at Leviticus chapter 12, this is the Old Testament law here. Moses has written this. And in Leviticus chapter 12, he writes these words. According to what the Lord had said to him, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity she shall be unclean, and on the eighth day the flesh of his, the child's foreskin, shall be circumcised. She then shall continue in the blood of her purification thirty-three days." She shall not touch any hallowed thing nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. So Mary is following very carefully what the Lord had stipulated in the Old Testament law for a Jewish woman to do when she gave birth to a male child. She was to go through this purification process of over 40 days. And here, on the eighth day, even as it said there, Jesus is circumcised, and then Mary goes through all of the process according to the law of making sure that she follows the purification process. And of course, then in verse 23, Luke quotes, as a good historian who's done his homework, from Exodus chapter 13 and verse 23, where he says, it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This is hearkening back to what happened in the Exodus. You'll remember the Israelites are in captivity. They're in captivity to the Egyptian people. And Moses has been called by God to proclaim to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh repeatedly says, I will not, I will not. On occasion he says, I will, just kidding, I won't. And God has to do sign after sign after sign, hardening the heart of Pharaoh repeatedly until finally it culminates in this great act in which God tells the people of Israel, take a lamb, kill it, and put the blood on the doorposts of your house. Because there will be this evening an angel of death who will come through. And that angel of death will look at the doorposts, and if he sees the blood on the doorposts, he will pass over you. But if he does not, every firstborn child will be killed. So when the people of Israel did as the Lord had told them, they made sure that there was blood on the doorposts, signifying that somebody had to die. But instead of the firstborn, it was a lamb. That that evening, Pharaoh's own son died because no lamb had died for him in his place. And at that point, in Leviticus chapter 13, the Lord makes it, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 13, the Lord makes it quite clear that the firstborn is to be consecrated to the Lord. So here we are. Over a thousand years later, after this event, 1,500, 1,600 years later, here is Jesus, 
He is being brought before the Lord. He has opened the womb of Mary. And according to the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. What does the word holy mean? It has two senses. The first one is the one we most often think of, and that is that holiness means purity, righteousness. And so perhaps you could say every male who opens the womb shall be called pure, righteous before the Lord, but that's not what what God is saying here. The second sense of the word holy means to be sanctified, to be set apart. And what is happening then is each male who opens the womb is called the one who is set apart to the Lord. Here's Jesus, set apart to the Lord. But Luke is trying to labor the point that Jesus is God. How can Jesus be set apart to God if Jesus is God? And this is where this gets fascinating, is Luke is opening Theophilus' eyes to remember and realize that God is one beyond our comprehension as finite human beings, but that there is some sense that we have to remember. And that is that God, though he is one, remember the Shema, the Lord our God is one. Nevertheless, he is three in person. And so when Jesus, who opens the womb of Mary, is set apart, called holy to the Lord, he is called holy to his Father. So Jesus is the sanctified Redeemer. He's set apart from all the rest. There were plenty of people before Jesus who claimed to be the Redeemer of Israel, who claimed to be the next coming Messiah, but they all died. Rome made sure that every single one of them died because Herod was not about to let some crazy Jewish dude take over his throne. But this one was different. This truly was the Redeemer of Israel who had come, and he was set apart to the Father for his purpose, his mission in coming. And that's what Luke will unpack over the rest of his gospel. Why did Jesus have to come? He's the set-apart Redeemer. But number two, Jesus not only is the sanctified Redeemer, he is also the promised Redeemer. And here we're introduced to a character a guy named Simeon. And this man here is described as one who was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Here is a man who daily went to the temple. He's an old guy at this point. He's going to the temple, and he's described as righteous, his character, that is to say that he was one who was seeking to follow the law of God. And not only that, but he was devout. He was devoted wholeheartedly to the Lord. And it says that he was waiting the consolation of Israel. What is, what is he talking about? What is Simeon, this, this old guy, waiting for? The consolation of Israel. Well, I believe perhaps he may have had a passage from Isaiah in mind where God tells the prophet, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Israel has been judged by God repeatedly for her evil. 
She has been judged repeatedly for her violation of God's holy law, and yet, even though God judges her and chastises her and even sends her into captivity, God tells his prophet, comfort my people. And in one of the greatest chapters of the Old Testament that to this day many Jewish people do not seem to understand, in Isaiah 53, the reason why Israel could be comforted is because there would be a suffering servant who would come to redeem Israel. So Simeon knows that God will send somebody who is the consolation of Israel, who will bring comfort to the people of Israel. And even though he may not have necessarily understood all of the ins and outs of what that meant, he certainly understood this, that Israel needed to be redeemed. And it had been revealed to him By God's Holy Spirit, in verse 26 we read, or excuse me, in verse, yes, 26, it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Imagine Simeon, his own little Alamo, spiritually speaking. He cannot save himself. He can do nothing to redeem himself. And God's Holy Spirit reveals to him, you, Simeon, we'll see the Messiah. I don't know when the Holy Spirit revealed that to him. Can you imagine if God had revealed that to him when he was 21 years old? He's an old guy. Let's say he's 80 years old at this point. He's 80 years old. He's been waiting for that promise to see that Messiah for so long. And every day he gets up and he gets ready to go to the temple and he says, is today the day? Is this the day I get to finally see the consolation of Israel? I see the Messiah come. One fateful day, it happened. How he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the text doesn't say. But it says in verse 27, he came by the Spirit, which means that God's Spirit was working upon him. And when he got to the temple and the parents of Jesus bring him to do according to the custom of the law in dedicating this firstborn to God, that Simeon sees this child and somehow through God's Spirit knows this is the one. This is the Messiah. And as he takes that child in his arms and he looks at the consolation of Israel in his little infant face, he sings a song. The song is in verses 29 through 32. The song is the fourth one. You'll remember I keep mentioning that there are four songs here in Luke's narrative of these first two chapters. These four songs are songs surrounding the birth of Jesus. This is the fourth one. It's referred to often as the Nunc Dimittis. This is the the song that's talking about Jesus as the Redeemer. And when Simeon sings this song, I want you to notice here what he says in verse 29. He takes up Jesus in his arms. He blesses God and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That makes me think that Simeon has been going day after day after day for years to the temple. 
waiting for the consolation of Israel, looking for that child. And every day when another child is dedicated, he wonders, is this the one? Is this the one? And finally, now, Simeon says, I've seen him. Now I can depart in peace. This is his way of saying, Lord, you can kill me now. You can take my life. I have seen what I've waited to see my whole life. I have yearned to see this child, the long-awaited Messiah. You can let me depart in peace according to your word. For, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. This is who Jesus is, Theophilus, Dr. Luke says. Jesus is not just a mere child being born. When Rodney King was born on June 25th in 1992, there was nothing spectacular about that. When you were born in whatever day and whatever year that happened to have been, there was nothing spectacular about that. But when Jesus was born... There was everything spectacular about it. For Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Why is that so startling that he would say it that way? Because repeatedly the Jewish people were missing it. And throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, the Jewish people continue to miss it. The eyes of the people of Israel did not see their salvation standing right in front of them. Jesus would make a man whose hand was withered from birth to stretch forth and be whole. And what do the Pharisees, the doctors, the teachers of Israel say? Do they throw up their hands in the air and say, we have seen him, the Messiah? No. They say, you're not supposed to be doing that on the the Sabbath day. They missed the Messiah. Their eyes saw repeatedly what he would do. And here is a man who is old and well advanced in years, who sees an infant who at this point can only cry, can't speak a word. And he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Not just his physical eyes, but I believe Simeon with the eyes of faith saw the salvation, the consolation of Israel. But it isn't just the consolation of Israel. If this Jesus, if this child really is the salvation, Theophilus may be wondering, is it just for the Jewish people? Is this just for for Israel? But this Jesus, who is the promised redeemer, is not just the one to bring salvation to Israel, but indeed he is to bring salvation in its scope to all people. For in verse 31 of this song, Simeon sings, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of of your people Israel. This child did not simply come to redeem Israel. This child came to be a light to all people. And when we read from John chapter 3, what does Jesus tell to Nicodemus, a doctor of Israel? 
says, you must be born again. But then he says in verse 19, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The problem here with humanity, even though salvation has been revealed before the face of all people, the problem is not with their eyeballs. The problem is with their heart. They do not want to see the light because they want their deeds that are evil instead. And you and I do this almost every day, even as Christians. Every day, we choose our sin at some point over the light. And here, this light that has come was not just for Israel, but for all people. And this light would bring salvation to all people. But what was the purpose behind it all? Of course, it's salvation, the spiritual salvation of all people. Jesus did not come to redeem them from Rome. Jesus came to redeem them from the slave market of sin. And every person in this room either is currently in the slave market of sin or was in the slave market of sin, but has been redeemed by this child. If you're sitting in this room as somebody who is still in the slave market of sin, you have not seen with your eyes the salvation that Jesus gives through the gospel. If you have not seen your own sin before the face of a holy God, if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus and said, you are Lord, then you are under condemnation, like Jesus said to Nicodemus. And the only way you can be redeemed is if you believe in the name of the Son of God. If you believe in this child who lived a perfect, holy, pure, set-apart life to his Father. If you are someone who believes that Jesus died on the cross in place of your sins in the same way as the blood was on the doorpost, so was Jesus' blood dripping on the cross for you. And if you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead three days later, you will be saved. That is the salvation you need. That is the deliverance you need from the Alamo you're in. But it's only through Jesus. Why would not anyone want to accept that message? Why would there be people who would reject it? Well, Joseph and Mary, as they hear Simeon sing this song, they begin to marvel. They begin to think about those things that are spoken of their child. And then Simeon blesses them. But he turns specifically to Mary and he says to her, Behold, look, Mary, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. What is he talking about? The fall and rising. Well, there's lots of different interpretations, but I'll tell you what I believe he's saying. I believe Simeon is saying that Jesus will bring about the spiritual rising of people from their graves. 
but will also bring about the condemnation and fall of those who reject him. That's what Jesus said in John 3. Some people are condemned because they don't want the light. Jesus is the light, and if you come to the light, you will rise again to eternal life. But if you reject that light, you will fall to your grave and experience the eternal damnation and judgment of God. And so Simeon says to Mary, this child is set for both the judgment and the joy of many in Israel. And you will see it, and you will know it, and you'll remember these words, Mary, because one day, verse 35, a sword will pierce through your own soul. I wonder if Dr. Luke, who may have talked to Mary about this whole account, saw tears in her eyes when she told of this story. For now, after the fact, she saw her son hanging on the cross, pierced. And I don't know if she was there, but she am sure heard about it when the soldiers pierced his side. I wonder if she remembered those words of Simeon when he said a sword will pierce through you too. All of these things are in the mind of Theophilus as Luke writes these things. Jesus is the promised redeemer, but unfortunately the reception of him would be mixed. There would be some who would fall and there would be some who would rise. Luke finally says, I want you to know, Theophilus, that Jesus isn't just a sanctified, set-apart redeemer. Jesus isn't just the promised redeemer from Old Testament long ago, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But number three and finally, he is the testified redeemer. And this is really in part from verses 25 through 35 because Simeon is one of those people who testifies that Jesus is the redeemer. The first thing he does when he gets Jesus in his arms is he says, this is the redeemer, the salvation of Israel. So Luke, like a historian, is gathering his data. And one of the things to the identity of somebody that you need is you have to verify your identity, right? And so, for example, when you're, when you're trying to make an order of something or you're on some website and they want you to verify that everything there is like a walkway or everything is a stoplight or a stop sign and you're like, okay, like three, like three little pixels are uh, kind of the stoplight. Do I click that square or not? I don't know if I just overthink those, I think. But you have to verify your identity somehow, right? If you go to some place and they want you to show your, your verification, your, your card, your, your driver's license, showing who you are, here is Luke. Theophilus is saying, is Jesus who he said he was? Luke says, there are testimonies that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. Here's Simeon. Here's the first witness. Here's the first testimony of the identity of Jesus. But then he introduces this second one, and I'll just have to go through this quickly. But in verse 36, he says, There was another one. Her name was Anna, a prophetess of the daughter of Phanuel, and she was great in age. She had been married for seven years, and it appears that she had been a widow and was now at least 84 years old. 
And she has been going to the temple, and she has been fasting and praying night and day. Again, she's a very devout woman, devoting her life to God. She'd been married for seven years, had no children. And when her husband died, she could have gotten remarried, but she said, no, I will take the one life I have, and I will devote it to God. And I will spend my time talking to him, and I will fast, and I will pray. And it says that she did this night and day. But even as Simeon is singing the Nunc Dimittis, she walks in. And in verse 38, it says, coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him. If you have the New King James, that him is capital H, talking about Jesus. She spoke of Jesus to all those who looked for what? Redemption in Israel. Theophilus, here is testimony number two. You got Simeon and Anna. And here is a woman who has devoted her entire life to serving and praising and worshiping God. Don't you think, Theophilus, she would know God incarnate when she sees him? And she does. And she doesn't just look at him and say, wonderful, Lord, thank you for letting me see the Messiah who's come. And then goes off and continues with her day. No. It says, she spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. Her heart and mind and mouth overflowed with Jesus. And she spoke of him to everybody. She could not help but speak about this child because she knew what he would do. He would redeem people. So Luke concludes this little section by saying, when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, again, Jesus sanctified according to the law. You see that repeatedly. According to the law, according to the law, according to the law. Not one ounce of Jesus' background has any hint of scandal. He was, all of this was according to the law. They returned to their own city, Nazareth, and this child, Jesus, grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and another testimony, the grace of God was upon him. If Simeon and Anna weren't enough testimony to who Jesus was, could you at least give the credit that God himself is the testimony of who Jesus was? Jesus is the promised redeemer to bring the light of salvation to all people. And the question we have to ask is this. Have you embraced that redeemer? If you have not, you are, like Jesus said, already condemned And your eternal destiny is nothing short of damnation and judgment in the lake of fire. But there is a Redeemer who has come, who is the Redeemer to bring light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel, who, if you by faith believe, is the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel, set apart from the womb, for the purpose of his father, 
who died on the cross for your sins and who rose again gloriously conquering death so that the, Paul, the Apostle Paul could taunt death and say, Oh, death, where is your victory, O grave? Where is your sting? If you believe that, then Jesus says in John 3.16, you will have everlasting life. That is the message that you must give. But let me ask also this one final question. Were you not stirred as a Christian who has believed in Jesus as your Savior, as the promised Redeemer, were you not stirred by the testimony of Simeon and Anna? Were you not struck by the fact that their response to seeing the Redeemer wasn't apathy? It wasn't, oh, ho-hum, there's the Redeemer of Israel. There's the Redeemer who has delivered me. They responded with joy and worship and their hearts and their minds and their mouths overflowed with joy and praise to God for their salvation. And even as was mentioned earlier as we were singing, sometimes I just don't think we're really truly amazed by God's grace. We do not realize that each and every one of us is an individual spiritual Alamo with no help with no hope of saving ourselves, that if left to ourselves, we are dead. And yet, there is the Redeemer who came to deliver us from the spiritual forces that surrounded our personal Alamos and has delivered us, has given us the aid we need to be saved and delivered from our enemy, the greatest enemy we have, ourselves. Don't you think that if Colonel William B. Travis and former Congressman David Crockett and many others at the Alamo, had they received the aid they had, that they would have responded with joy and jubilance that they were delivered and saved? If that mere picture could be something that brings such great joy, how could the greater picture of our salvation and deliverance by the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, be less than that? Our Christian lives should overflow with joy and adoration and exaltation in Jesus, the blessed Redeemer who has come. Let us pray. As we reach the dawn of a new year, Lord, we're well aware of the salvation that we have been given alone in Christ. And for the person in this room who has yet to believe in Jesus Christ as his or her Redeemer, Lord, I pray that you would save them, bring them to faith, help them to know what is the sweetness, what is the joy, what is the peace of knowing Christ and having a relationship with you. Help us as your children who love you and who know you and who have received the salvation that you offer through the gospel of Jesus Christ and who have tasted of the heavenly gift. Help us to rejoice in that gift 
Help us to love and adore and to praise and magnify and exalt and rejoice in you. Lord, help us to truly be amazed by grace so that it overflows from our hearts and our minds to our mouths. Whether we sing in our homes to our families, like Simeon singing the Nunc Dimittis, may we sing the gospel message this next week and into this next year till our Savior comes for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.